In today's podcast, we interview Reggie Roba, partner and vice president of finance at Union Rock Partners. In this conversation, we lean heavily on Reggie's strong understanding and extensive background in energy lending and oil and gas financing, and dig into the topic of how banks are evaluating their outstanding debt with ENP companies and the steps they will take to reduce the borrowing basis of those companies. The conversation then transitions into the opportunities Reggie and his team are seeing out in the field with upstream oil and gas investments and how his team is ensuring intelligent acquisitions for its investors. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Reggie, thanks uh, for joining us here today. Yeah, appreciate it, Adam. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. So I think uh, let's start this podcast off here with you giving us a little bit of background as far as you know where you're coming from and, and where you're at today. Sure. Yeah. So uh, currently, um, one of the uh, partners and vice president of finance for uh, Union Rock Partners, we're a, a direct investment platform um, in the oil and gas space, upstream space, um, really focused mainly on on non-controlling interests. So uh, royalties, minerals, and then also um, from the leasehold side, from a working interest side. Um, yeah, previous to that, uh, was at BOK Financial, um, Bank of Oklahoma, uh, for some of the viewers might know them, um, did energy lending there, uh, left the bank down in, in uh, 2017, early 17, and and um, joined Copper Trail that has now morphed into uh, where we're at now, which is uh, Union Rock Partners. Great. So uh, what, what brought you into the oil and gas space? Yeah, so uh, I guess I'm second generation oil man. Uh, to to kind of to put a funny spin on it, my dad was a geologist, um, so I grew up around uh, grew up around the industry. Um, my, my first experience in oil gas, I was I was six months old, and and uh, it was my dad's uh, biggest well. And, and geologists are kind of like baseball players and pretty superstitious, so. Uh, ever since then, uh, I think I've been out to every single uh, pad site or, or drill site uh, <laughs> because he's never hit a dry hole when when I was there. So that's how I originally started around it. And then um, my mother's side of the family uh, or is uh, ranchers in Kansas, and so we've we've always had um, production from a from kind of a land landholder side um, as well. So what what drove you into uh, the financial aspect of this with your father having a background in geology and you spending a bunch of time in the field, you know, what drove you to more of the economic model side of things? Um, I've always been, been kind of a, I guess a numbers guy in a way, you know, enjoyed the details, uh, enjoyed understanding not only how things work, but, but how they were financed. And so um, came out of school um, uh, really just, Focusing, wanting to either be a part of an EMP or or go the banking route, um, and ended up being going the banking route for the first uh, four or five uh, years of my career um, at BOK, and I guess lucky or unlucky, um, started with them in thirteen, so saw uh, eighteen to uh, let's say eighteen months of of good oil price, and then then it kind of all fell apart in in late fourteen through fifteen. Um, 
but yeah, that's that was kind of how it all, all got started. So what you know, when you came in, you, you were just entering the the tail end of the boom, and and then you know slid into that low commodity price environment. You know, being new to the space, what what was your your first reaction to to that transition? Um, you know, the first reaction was, well, of course it's going to go back up. Um, and I think that's something that keeps happening continuously. Uh, even now as we're sitting at, I believe up above $20, which is over the last couple of weeks is an impressive price, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, I think, I think the first reaction was definitely, oh, well, we'll be back at 80, 90, hundred dollars in no time. And, and little, did I know when we were sitting at $75, $65 that we'd go find the mid twenties, um, not too far after that thought. And, and, um, I re- really remember, uh, one of big mentors, uh, to me is a gentleman by the name of Mike Logan. Um, we're all sitting in this meeting at, at the bank and he goes, guys, it's, it's not going to get better. Um, and it's time, time for us to start focusing on our clients and trying to help and work with them uh, to weather the storm because this seems like it will be lower for longer. And, you know, at that time he was in his sixties and had seen a few of these, not only from the banking side, but also from being an industry. So what, what type of direction did Mike give you at that point and, and the rest of the team as far as how to move forward from the banking perspective? Yeah, it was totally a work with your clients um, idea. You know, it's it wasn't a we're gonna come and take all their assets and 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 take over. You know, I think that's the last thing even nowadays that that a bank wants to do is ever operate a set of assets. Um, for the most part, they they don't have the the experience or the wherewithal to do that. Um, but no, I mean. Mike's main point was let's find a way to work with our clients. Um, and I think that's why he was, he was a pretty respected guy because uh, not only had he had been through this from sitting on the other side of the table as a finance professional and um, EMP, but, but also as the bank. Um, and so, yeah, it was just work with your clients, figure out a way to make it work. You know, uh, luckily for me, I, we had 60, or 70 clients and and I got to see 60 or 70 different case studies of, of what good, good guys did, what okay companies did and what bad companies did. And, and, but yeah, I mean, that, that was, that, that was probably one of the best experiences that I'll end up um, ever having in my career is just really, really watching what all these different companies did and, and how they behaved. Um, and, you know, unfortunately uh, for some that, that ended up in bankruptcy, and and for others that that ended up them prospering, adding you know additional acreage, acquiring some of the, if you will, defunct companies. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I guess to finish that thought, I think Mike's really main point was just work with the guys that want to work work with you, um, and then for the clients that wanted to kind of stiff arm and and deflect. Um, those were always the ones that ended up in more difficult conversations. So when you go back to those case studies that you had during the last downturn, do you, how much of it's a factor of where companies were at going into it 
versus how they reacted and responded um, after you know the the downturn occurred and and they started you know reevaluating internally. Uh, I guess how would you break you know the pre pre collapse post collapse reactions and and the effects that it had on companies and their future coming out of it. Yeah, well, I think there was definitely a good good chunk of companies in that, you know, call it from 09 time frame up to 13, 14, that balance sheets were just out of whack. Um, capital was cheap. Shale wells were really just becoming something in, in, at the beginning of that period. Um, and so a lot of groups were, were pushing the envelope. So I guess to answer the first part of that, I think, most important part is to always have a good, clean balance sheet. Um, you know, if that means losing, uh, you know, five to ten percent on from a optimal capital stack uh, standpoint, then I think it's well worth it all day to you know stay in that one and a half, you know, the, the sub two times leverage standpoint. But I guess to to fully answer your question there, um, so one, it was the groups that were moderate to, uh, to had at least a moderate balance sheet. The, the, the second group is groups that had an okay, moderate balance sheet or a good balance sheet and then how they reacted. And the groups that, that let's say were kind of in that two and a half times to three times ratio. So fairly levered uh, three times their annual cash flow uh, or EBITDA is normally how the bank would, would measure it. Um, those were the groups that you really saw the difference. And I think is where your question was going is they reacted quickly, or at least the good ones did. They reacted quickly. They started paying down debt. They were able to get out ahead of, of um, some of the price collapse and sell some assets to pay down debt. Um, unfortunately, uh, made some top end cuts from a from a salary and GNA standpoint, um, and so it, so to, I guess to answer your question, then yeah, I mean it's it, you that's where you, I guess you really saw that dividing line was the groups that kind of if you will put put their head in the sand and and going back to my earlier point, you know, oh we'll be back in eighty ninety dollars in no time. Um, that's where you really saw the difference. Were there any case studies? that you felt really surprised you in the way they came out of it, you know, uh, looking back at maybe their management structure or their position or their, you know, debt to equity ratio. Uh, were there any that, you know, just kind of blew you out of the water and, and impressed you with their, their ability to, to, to move out of adversity and rebound into a, a strong position? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think luckily for us, um, the bank was always really good at finding good clients and, and good prospects. Um, and, and we had a conservative way of underwriting things. So yeah, no, there were definitely groups that came out ahead um, and really thrive. And, and, and although this price collapse over the last month uh, due to, COVID and also due to the kind of Russia, uh, Saudis feud is, is, you know, uh, way more severe by at least 10 bucks than where we were in, in late 15, early 16. Um, 
you know, I have no doubt that those companies are still still some of the better ones out there. Yeah, it, it and it's it's impressive how you know adversity pushes people and, and exposes the strong and um, you know obviously does not favor the weak. So uh, what what do you think right now are some of the the things that that banks are going through when in looking at their uh, their their companies that they're they're working with and that they've financed and what what's what's the process at this point when when moving them forward yeah i think um well, i mean that's a lot of we could probably spend an hour talking about that but i guess high level you know really what they're looking at is we're in the midst or or you know, bar and base seasons typically every six months, kind of starting late March, ending ending the end of this month in May. Um, so we're in the middle of it right now, um, or, or the banks are. Luckily, I'm I'm no longer. Um, but um, so really, what that what they're looking at is they're running their reserves. They have a price deck. Um, unfortunately, I have a feeling the engineers have had to run run the reserves a few times because of. Uh, most price decks have sensitivity levels that if price moves down by five to 10%, um, if I recall correctly, they have to re-update the price deck. But um, so they're looking at the reserves, um, looking at first reserves, right? Because that gives you a baseline. What's my present value, whether or not it's PV8 to PV10, uh, depending on the bank. That gives you kind of your foundation of of knowing what you can borrow against, which is typically in the fifty to to sixty um, and, and sometimes seventy percent range of that PDP value, and then you'll pick up a little value for your PDMPs and and your PUDs. Um, in a market like this, where when you look at your PUDs and they're probably uneconomical at at at, at a sub you know thirty dollar price deck, uh, then you're not going to be picking up any value there. So. First, they'll start with that. That's kind of the main main piece of the cake. And then really it's going into their forecast, into the company's forecast and looking at their cash flows, not only historically, but but going forward. And so there's a lot of sensitivity analysis ran around the company's forecast. You know, I think we've seen or we've seen a tremendous amount of layoffs lately. So that all gets kind of factored in. And then really what you're looking at is, okay, in six months when I'm back here in October, uh, November timeframe. What does this look like? You know, can we, can they maintain that borrowing base that we already have? Um, or do they need to start making payments to get, get me where we'll be or get us where we'll be uh, come, come October, come the next borrowing base redetermination. And so uh, again, big staples, the present value of the company, but really what's even more precedent right now is how much cash flow do they have and are they able to continue to maintain their their leverage ratio so their their debt to EBITDA ratio and if that looks like that is going to start to creep up or creep out of limits which is used to be uh, when I first started my career as a four times multiple now most banks are at a three and a half times leverage multiple so they're looking at that uh, and saying, look, you know, if they're sitting at three times and then we get to, to October and, okay, now they're pushing up against three and a half times, if they don't start paying down debt, you're going to see the banks kind of quote unquote go into their black box and say, hey, you guys need to make a, 
a 10 or 15 or a 20% reduction in, in your volume base and you have six months to make those payments. So uh, how well do companies typically respond to pressure expectations from the bank? Is it a pretty mutual relationship where everybody wants to work together? Is there one side that has more pressure in the relationship or, uh, you know, it has to, obviously the borrower has a lot more performance uh, issues than the lender, sure. but you know, when it comes to that, that relationship, how, how much weight does the bank typically put against the borrower? And, and also, you know, does that change based on the, the nature of the, the M and a market um, for, for these companies to be able to liquidate and create some possible cash flow to repay their debts? Does that yeah. weigh into the equation? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. I mean, I think the way most credit agreements are set up or, or kind of standard is basically if there's a borrowing based deficiency, uh, there's kind of three options. There's option number one, which is you provide us additional collateral that's not in the borrowing base, um, which then push, pushes that borrowing base up. Most of the time, that's most of the time a borrower usually has thrown all the collateral at the loan. Um, to, to get their original borrowing base. The second option are what we call MRC payments, which are monthly uh, commitment reduction payments. Uh, those allow for six months um, to um, six months to basically take that deficiency divided by six, or traditionally by six. If if the forecast shows that you have more cash now, then it might be you know a higher payment uh, decreasing to a lower payment which just really can turn into kind of a vicious cycle, especially if you end up six months from now in a similar or lower price deck. And then the third option is that you just come up with the cash and you pay that deficiency right off, right? And so usually it's a combination of two and three of how the banks get back to get back to whole. But I mean, I guess from a pressure standpoint, um, the idea is that hopefully your clients understand where they're at and it isn't the bank coming to them and saying, look, your borrowing base is way out of whack. I mean, the, the most clients, I, I, I would assume all clients at this point should understand if you're going to even be in a loan situation or have a RBL, you should understand how that's at least within reason calculated. Right. And so you should have looked back at the beginning of March or end of March when things started to, to really fall off here and said, look, I have a borrowing base coming up here in a month. What is this going to look like? And you should be preparing to, to set yourself up. And, and ideally, it's the client coming to the bank and saying, hey, we have an issue here. This is what we're going to try to do to solve it. We're making GNA cuts. We're, we're not drilling these wells. Rather, drill these wells. We're going to use this capital to pay down the line. And that's the ideal world. But I mean, I guess to answer your questions, you have everyone in, in that whole spectrum and, or at least that's what I saw was you had people that stuck their head in the sand and then you had groups that were outselling things. And so just to finish then on your M and a comment, um, no, ideally you're able to meet those reductions by, by cash flow um, would be the ideal situation. I think what happens, I guess at the end of this, say six months period is if you're not able to make a payment, then, um, what typically happened, and this could have changed by now, um, but typically we would, that's when you start to work out the loan 
And when it goes into work out, the terms and ideas and the flexibility all changes. Um, it, it gets a lot harder to get get ideas done and because you don't have someone that, you know, your relationship banker um, that is, is pushing for what's trying to do not only best for the bank, first and foremost, but also what's best in the client. And when it ends up in work out, then, you know, it's just what's best for the bank. Um, but uh, so what I'm trying to say here is I, I think luckily groups that are going through these borrowing bases right now and that have that that borrowing base commitment reduction uh, is they'll have six months to kind of figure out what they're going to do. Um, and so the bank isn't going to push for you to sell something as soon as you get into that. But within six to 12 months, I do think you will start to see some distressed sales um, that are being pushed by the banks. So that's really interesting because if you think about historically, I mean, the shale revolution is only, you know, one, one and a half decades old. And it, you know, the, the decline curves on those wells is significantly steeper than anything that we've seen historically from a production standpoint. So if, if these companies are withdrawing a lot of their capital away from uh, new exploration, new development, and funneling it towards repaying their debt, you know, how, how does that play out over time in a situation where commodity prices may stay depressed for an extended period of time due to, you know, oversupply, reduced demand, and all those other variables that come into effect? Yeah, I think, um, well, I, in an ideal world, you, you come out with a stronger company um, by, by right size in your balance sheet. Um, and not all the times that will happen. And I, I guess the point I should have made earlier too is these barring based commitment reductions assumes you're nearly or fully uh, borrowed on your RBL, um, which is hopefully a situation most companies know after living through 14, 15, 16, is it isn't a good place to be. Uh, because of how quick changes can happen. And as to your point, how, how quick these wells decline off and really that you're always on that hamster wheel. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, I think that will play into it. And I think that is also kind of turns into this kind of death spiral, but uh, maybe I, I guess going back to the hamster wheel uh, references, it is kind of a constant ham hamster wheel trying to maintain production. And then if you're really trying to funnel cash and capital into debt then, or to pay back debt rather than develop, then uh, really that should probably make more sense though right now too, with where price decks are and what you can go out and, and hedge your, your current or future production at. Um, because likely in most situations, uh, you know, just assuming in a vacuum, you're just looking at well economics there's probably not much out there right now, if anything, from a shale perspective, from a horizontal perspective, that's that's economic. So then that would, you know, going back to corporate finance days, that would tell you that you should be putting your capital where it's going to be most valuable, which right now would probably be right-sizing your balance sheet. But to your point, in six months when production's declined off, um, are you going to be in a worse, worse position in that could be that that could happen, but really, when they look at borrowing bases, it's on a present value. So technically, 
you know, anywhere from eight to 10% discount. So PV8, PV10. And so technically you should receive more cash than what your PV value declines off at, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think that for people who traditionally don't peer into the financial space of the business, you know, this is all really, really interesting information because it, it opens the door to how capital works with the companies. And I, it's my understanding that, you know, the borrowing basis has really changed over the last, I don't know what the exact timeline is, but to the effect that it's much harder to borrow against reserves, especially uh, PUDs, proven undeveloped reserves. Mm-hmm. Most of the lending these days is PDP driven. Yep. And I think that suits really well to kind of what you were saying in, in regards to the balance sheet is the the money has gotten a lot tighter around focusing on what is actually going to be produced as opposed to what's theoretically going to be produced, which will have a different effect on the way we come out of this cycle. Um, is that, you know, would you, would you say that's a pretty accurate summary of what you're saying here? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, I think when I, when I started my career, um, you know, we were throwing anywhere to 20 North, North to 20% at, PUDs and, and ducks uh, from a barring day standpoint, uh, which I think uh, from BOK's standpoint is usually where they were always a very conservative bank. Um, and so I think using that, um, so I do think that's changed that to answer your question. And I, I think your last point about does this make it a lot different uh, coming out of this downturn? And, and I think it's, it's absolutely going to be the case because when we came out of, uh, you know, 15, 16, which feels like we're still living in the downturn up until we, we walked into Q1 of this year, um, you know, there were still capital markets in 16. Um, there were still groups out raising equity, IPOing, uh, raising debt from a unsecured senior debt standpoint um, in the bond markets and Wall Street over the last, I guess, probably somewhere in mid-17, somewhere somewhere in 17, so the last three years or so, um, have, have really turned their back on, on oil and gas. Um, you know, I think if you look at a lot of public companies that destroyed a tremendous amount of capital um, from either drilling too closely uh, from a spacing standpoint or or paying too much for, for acreage and, and basins in Texas that will not be disclosed. Um, so I think, uh, <laughs> I, I just don't think there's a, uh, I don't think wall street's going to be there to save, save people. And not that they saved a ton of groups in, in 16, but they kind of saved the overall industry because they allowed capital to move freely. So that going back to your earlier point around, M&A, uh, you know, allowed M&A to happen uh, to kind of get rid of some of the companies that um, weren't weren't good companies anymore and need to need to sell their assets. Um, and so, yeah, I think that will be that will be where there'll be a ton of opportunity coming out of this. Um, and I've heard it now from from a few different uh, industry folks I follow and, and groups, and and you know, this could be kind of a quote unquote generational 
wealth building cycle um, for a lot of people in this industry. If you have the ability to have capital and 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 take care of, or not take care um, to take advantage of some of these um, some of the distress uh, situations. Yeah. So, and this might be too, you know, crystal ball ish uh, to to not pick a, a very formal way of saying it, but you know, some people are saying that this is really going to be an opportunity for the majors to come in and kind of sweep the board of all these small to mid cap companies, take over the positions that they've proven up and uh, at a steeply discounted rate. Uh, Is that something, you know, uh, going back to your experience here at the bank and, and seeing what happens with, you know, those small to mid size companies, going through a downturn like this and, and how they emerge. Do you, do you think there's still room for those type of companies in, in a future market? Um, or do you think that this truly might be one of those events that uh, the majors come in and, and re reposition themselves for onshore development? I think there's always going to be those smaller to mid-sized companies. I just, you know, that's where efficiency gains have always been. And that's really where to a point where the shale revolution really took off. Um, I think when you get into these larger, you know, large cap companies, um, there's kind of a, there's a book, right. Uh, That this is how you do everything. And it's in this book. So if A happens, you do B. Um, so I do think there those there will always be room for innovation and for smaller companies. Um, will we see a lot of consolidation? Does consolidation make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think with any mature industry, um, you know, efficiency gains of of being one of the bigger bigger dogs on the block as is always always a good thing to have. Um, but to say there wouldn't be little companies anymore is obviously nowhere going to be true, no matter what industry you're in. Um, and I think, I think that's where, um, but I do think the investing model of going forward forward will need to change with, uh, with some of these smaller companies. And I think a lot of it needs to be focused on, on how, how to protect capital, um, and, and protect capital, not not appreciate capital, but how to protect capital um, and appreciate it at a minimum of a moderate rate. Um, and I, I think that's where a lot of things will change now. And now I know what's probably going to happen over the next 12 or so months is a lot of a lot of private equity groups will go out and probably raise capital around a distressed market uh, standpoint and that you know we're going to be able to buy. A bunch of things for cheap and and i think in the lp limited partner world so the investor world is a lot of people did that in 15 and 16 and really never bought anything that cheap um or at least overall there of course were deals um so i think so i think that's that that there will be some liquidity and i think there's a lot of investors sitting on the sideline from a from a private standpoint that are that are like well we should put some money in this because something might actually come there might be a good time to get in buy at a low hopefully sell at a high um, and so i think that'll be really interesting to see how that plays out 
Yeah, and I think, you know, not I, I think here's now a really good moment of praise for you guys at uh, Unirock because, uh, you know, you have to be disciplined and have a lot of experience to know where the opportunity lies. And you, Jackie Haney and Anna May, have such a diverse background and so much experience in the industry and buying in the upstream space that that's what it takes to to be successful moving forward and i wonder how how do you guys and i guess now now's a good time to kind of transition into the fund that you all are raising and the concept around it uh, and one of the things that you had mentioned earlier was that the the small to mid cap companies those are really the innovators and those are yeah. the ones that go out and transform a play bring in new technologies new uh, production strategies, uh, new cost management strategies, and make what might not have been an economic uh, play into an economic one. So how do you guys, when you're looking out there into the future and thinking about how to position yourself, how do you balance your portfolio between those staples like Chevron and ConocoPhillips and companies like those, uh, you know, the major players, uh, against those really savvy, opportunistic type op of operators. Yeah, Adam, I guess uh, before we jump into that, I should probably just make a quick disclosure um, that these are just my views and, and not a view of the Union Rock, and in, in no way are we, or is my intent to um, market the fund. But yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the most important things that we look at is is who's the operator of, of these positions, especially from a from a, a working interest standpoint and in a royalty standpoint as well, but really looking at and seeing, you know, how are these operators performing over the last, you know, 12 to 24 months? What are those well results look like? And then um, from a, from a royalty standpoint, especially, you know, do they have the, the balance sheet and the capital behind them to, to be in a good standpoint to, to fully infill or, or drill, you know, kind of our minimal expected uh, wells in, in a certain area that, that we're buying. And so um, I guess from a balance standpoint, it's, it's really looking at all of those. And of course, all the geology and, and reservoir engineering and, and all of that to really understand how we think those, those wells will perform and, and um, all the kudos to Jackie on that one because um, we have a we enjoy uh, up upping Jackie's decline curves every time uh, new wells come on. That's that's kind of an inside joke between the three of us. But uh, she's pretty conservative in the way she underwrites, which is which is a great thing to have uh, in a space that um, can be tough at times, uh, especially from an operator standpoint. But yeah, I mean it's definitely a balance of of finding those bigger companies that have that balance sheet to really go in and fully infill drill. And then also the companies that innovate. But, but I would say, Adam, really for us, um, we don't, we don't put a technical boost on wells uh, when we underwrite them. We really just look at, um, you know, even now in 2020, we're looking back to 14, 15 production and saying, Okay, what's that average from 14, 15 up to, you know, a well that I have 12 months of data, and what does that type curve look like? Not, 
while company X has done this really cool completion, three sections, you know, to the South and these wells are, you know, 10, 10, 15, 20% above our type curve. And we don't then underwrite our type curve to what that company is doing. That's now operating in this investment that, that we've decided to make or that we're looking at making. Um, we really look at that historical data and, and that allows us to really have a level of conservatism. So I guess to answer your question, uh, for us, it's more focusing on, on groups that have the capital uh, in the balance sheet to come in and, and fully infill, especially from the royalty standpoint, where in a way you can have less less visibility than on development than you do from a working interest standpoint. You know, typical working interest deals that we're getting into, we're well aware that the rigs either on site or or we'll be there in the next month because we have AFEs in hand. Um, and so that takes a little bit of that concern around, around development timing out of it. Um, but yeah, definitely from the mineral perspective, more focused on groups with, with a larger balance sheet. Yeah. And I think that's a good time, you know, to kind of bring up the dynamics of your team here. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the makeup and, that you all have there and, and you know, what makes you guys such a, a powerful team moving forward? Yeah. So, uh, it's myself, um, and, and Jackie and Anna, as you alluded to, um, Anna has a midstream background, um, was with, uh, multiple private equity back groups. Um, and, and really has that lens of, of how to get that product from the wellhead to, to the refinery, um, to that downstream market. And, and, you know, people really think, well, it's the engineers and the, the geologists and, and maybe the finance guys, just give myself a little credit, uh, that make the money. Uh, but I, you know, you really, you don't make any money. You can drill an awesome well, but if you can't sell the product, you're not going to make any money. So, um, you know, Anna's really, really invaluable from that aspect of, of knowing, um, you know, being with her industry knowledge and, and expertise, being able to really understand from, you know, even drilling, going out and drilling or driving out to the side and looking um, and seeing, hey, you know, these, this pad is on XYZ system and and they have better pressures and they're selling this down market. So, you know, we can really target this, you know, three to $7 differential based on X, Y, and Z. Um, and then, and then Jackie's a uh, chemical engineer by, by school, but petroleum engineer by, by career and, and what she's decided to do. She's worked offshore um, for, for some of the majors uh, worked in refineries and then worked for a, a public and then private uh, Denver company uh, working in California assets and also Texas assets. And, um, you know, really good, good engineer, really understands not only the engineering side of it, but the business aspects of, of it. And I think that's, that's really the key to our team is we all come from these different spheres and have lived these different lives. But when we bring us all together, it's really from drilling the well to selling selling the barrel oil at the down uh, at the down market or the downstream market, excuse me. Um, and so I think that's where where we really come together. And then um, 
yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a good dynamic and it's really interesting during times like this on uh, when we're having conversations as a team, um, what we look like or what we're looking at um, each of us and, and then kind of trying to build the story of, of how we move forward from here. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. You know, the, the makeup of your team, it's, it's not traditional in any sense, but you know, when you're looking at the markets today, that's the type of discipline you need to have in order to really understand where you're going and what's going to be developed and what's not, what has, you know, a good line of sight on future development and what doesn't. And especially, you know, having that midstream experience in the group as well. I mean, that's really unconventional, I would think, for most of the investors working in our, you know, upstream non-operated space. But it makes a ton of sense because if you don't understand how that oil is going to get out of that field and at what cost, then you're not accounting for a huge variable and what you're ultimately going to make on that production. Yeah. I mean, there's been times uh, within our previous portfolio on Copper Trail where we've talked with operators and Anna's had some ideas on, hey, I think you guys could could move some things around and, and try to get into this pipeline. And you might realize a couple of dollars, uh, a better differential or better marketing costs. And, and that's key. I mean, you know, watching... Uh, being able to be under basically every operator in the DJ, we've seen anywhere, and this is kind of pre pre downturn, but anywhere from two to nine dollars a barrel differential in our realized price off a of WTI average, and that is at at twenty dollar oil, that is a huge swing. Even at fifty dollar oil, that's a huge swing. Um, and unfortunately, at twelve dollar oil a couple of weeks ago, that's even a bigger swing. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, to your point exactly. I mean, Ana brings a ton of value that I think a lot of groups don't have, and, and especially in our space. And so what what we are is we're basically, we're a fund, right? So we're, not to compare us to someone that's way bigger than us, but there's, there's kind of multiple ideas out there. There's direct investment funds, which are um, you know, there, there's one in the, in, in Denver, um, or there's multiple in Denver, but there's one big one that comes to mind um, where they direct, they're the operating team, they direct directly into the asset, they operate it, they drill it, they lease the land, they sell it, everything. And then, then there's the, which is the bucket that we fall into. And then there's the allocator model, which are the bigger private equity back teams or bigger private equity backers that back some of these uh, PE back teams. And those typically are just groups that are a bunch of finance guys and you know, I'm a finance guy. I love finance guys. Great, great people. But when it really comes down to the nuts and bolts of an industry, uh, they got plenty of people on their team that understand it, but the guys typically guys and gals typically sitting at the, at the top end are, are really just driven by, by, you know, how does this financially make sense? And that totally has, its place and, it, and it's worked for a long time. Um, but really, I think we've seen a big shift in investors wanting to get closer to the assets. And that's where this direct investment model um, starts to make a ton of sense. And so I guess my 
was a long way of saying basically my point is that I think you're exactly right that we are quite a bit different because you know the majority of the team comes from an operational background or from an operational background and standpoint and thinks about the business that way um, and then you also have just enough of a mix of a finance guy to to run the numbers and say, yeah, this makes sense. You know, project A makes more sense than project B. And so we should pr pursue A. And, and you can do that without throwing it into a model. It just becomes a gut kind of common sense feeling. Um, but being able to kind of have that background of, of the numbers, which Jackie's just as much in the numbers as I am, but um, really driving that, that shit because we actually know how to not only drill the well, but get that, get that product down market where, you know, some of these larger private equity um, funds are really just finance guys and don't have that operational experience. Yeah. And I think you're unique too, from the finance perspective of coming out of the bank. And when it comes to these non-operated assets, you got to know how they think, how they breathe, how they act. And, you know, I, that I, I think that, you know, to your, uh, you're not going to toot your own horn here, but I will, you know, I think that's what makes you different as well, as far as a numbers guy is concerned, because you have that practical experience that's going to be really applicable to a situation where you guys don't necessarily control the the production or operation of that asset that you're, you're passively receiving the benefit of, of the work that goes into, you know, extracting oil from, from the ground. So I think, you know, I, just to add to, to the dialogue of, of your team here and, and to, to give you credit when credit's due, I think that's a unique skill set that you bring to the table as well. I, I appreciate that. Appreciate that. So I, I guess, do you guys have a strategy and uh, not to put you on the spot, um, but do you, do you see this as, you know, more of uh, passively, you know, you identify the, the successful operators, you know, determine their balance sheets through the craft of your networks and through public records and other, you know, sources that you have that um, are proprietary? Um, or do you have a vision of a more active role in, in working with these operators to ensure uh, the, you know, the, the, your, your assets? Yeah, I think, I think most investors look at us, look at us as being passive, just as you suggested, but really the way we look at it and the data that you can use and having that operational background and understanding of actually how a well is drilled and how to get that product to market allows us to really jump ahead of the drill bits and be diversified into multiple pads where, you know, if you're just company, you know, if you're just backing company A, company A is going to drill one pad or you know, a couple of pads a year, maybe if they're a smaller operator. And so you're really just focused in on, on that single, um, a single pad and really, you know, not a ton of diversification there, those multiple pads um, where we can go around and, you know, talk to operator or be an operator, A, B, C, D's pads and be across, you know, a couple of pads of, on each. And that really allows us to diversify. So I, so what I'm trying to say here is I don't really view us as passive. Sure. We don't have that, that control aspect of, 
you know, the break's going to show up on, on Monday, uh, June the 3rd. Um, but, but we can use our data um, and our understanding of operations to make it more of an active management of, of the positions. But I guess while you're asking the question, one, one thought that came to mind, um, and even going back to our previous portfolio or, or, or fund that's still, still active today and still performing very well, um, is we have been able to go in and, and add value um, especially on some smaller teams. Um, and I think that's going to be, I think that breadth of knowledge that we have will actually hopefully be a benefit uh, to some of our partners from that are the operator standpoint as, as people have cut a tremendous amount of staff um, over the last couple of months. And, and I think, you know, our ability to come in and, and you know, just using Ana as for an example, you know, help an operator, a smaller team work through their midstream agreements or, or help them get into pipes via, via her relationships um, that are then on pads that, that, that we're a part of. I, we see that being a, a bigger part of our portfolio moving forward. Um, so I do think we, we will be able to add some value and especially as staffs have gone smaller over the last couple of months. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point and something that I've also been kind of picking up on in the last couple of weeks is that what historically has been, you know, what we call a tight hole industry where we keep all the information really close to the vest. You know, when, when it comes to times like these, you got to collaborate and innovate and work together to get projects across the finish line. And I think it'll be pretty interesting to see how we come out of this as an industry, you know, with the prospectus of being more collaborative to ensure the success of a project moving forward. And it's with an open hand, like the ones, the examples that you provided from your team and working with operators that is really going to push that forward. Yeah, I think, um, I think you're exactly right. And I think a lot to do with uh, us younger guys too. I mean, you know, we, you and I have had a ton of conversations the last couple of weeks of, of ideas. And, and in some ways, you know, we've worked together on, on projects before and, and you guys also invest in, in similar uh, assets as well. But, you know, I, I really think at the end of the day, it's, you know, in my mind, the more brains there are, the better off we're all going to be. Um, and so I, I think you're exactly right. And I think it's personally, I think it's driven by, by the younger generation of, of groups and, and people that are just used to having a ton of data in front of them. And so this tight hole idea of, uh, that you alluded to, I just, I don't think that will, I, I think, I, like you said, I think that's starting to disappear. Um, and I think it has been over the last couple of years and, and will accelerate as, as we move into the next you know, next decade or so. And I think that's great. Yeah. I, not to deviate too far from where you guys, you know, this, the, the topic around what you're working on and how you're building it out and all the factors that are going to go into making you guys as successful as you will be. But it, it is interesting to, to think about this generational handoff. And I, the, I think the problem we face as an industry is that great divide between generations. I mean, we're basically missing a generation in between because 
of the collapse back in the 80s uh, and a lot of people exiting the industry. So you have 80s, 90s. So you have this this big generational divide between the baby boomers and the uh, millennials. And it seems like, you know, we, we got to figure out how to work together through this transition. And, and this time is going to be the trying one where we, you know, either come up with ways to solve problems together or, you know, we, we lock ourselves in our rooms and hopefully we'll come up with these solutions on our own. Do you have any ideas or um, have thought through, you know, how that might look contractually or, you know, what, what might open up that, that opportunity to work together on projects uh, where you do have, you know, interests aligned and perhaps a, uh, a unique blend of skill sets that, that don't overlap with each other to, to get projects successful. Have you guys thought about how you might do that uh, moving into your uh, new fund here? Yeah, I think, um, well, luckily for us, and it's always been part of the, you know, oil and gas assets are so divisible, right? So everyone can get a piece. And so I think that's, that's that framework and structures already put together um, from a contract standpoint. I just think what will need to happen is, is operators will need to be more willing to have those conversations um, and look at us, especially from the non-op side as, as being, as being a partner and as, you know, a group like ours being able to add value where, um, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of groups involved in, in the non-op and, in mineral space or, or either finance back or, you know, finance from background or, or from career standpoint or, or land guys. And, and really the only box we check and, and a third of that box is the finance side. And that's just mean from my background. Um, you know, most of, most of the groups operational as we've already alluded to uh, previously in this conversation. So I just think, I, I think it just needs a, it'll be a change in, in, in the openness that that operators have. And I do think the pressure put, put on them to conserve cash flow and, and maintain a balance sheet, which then unfortunately turns into less bodies within a company. Um, I, I think that'll, that, that will be the driving, I guess, pressure point that, that allows them to untight hole, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, in addition to the more financial uh, data modeling of uh, operator that you're potentially going to buy under, do you also take a look at the management team and where the equity is coming from and how that might drive the future course of, of that specific company? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's the most important part. Again, kind of alluding to uh, most of the leasehold working interest um, sides that we're in, we we have line of sight into uh, the development via an AFE, but definitely from the mineral aspect. I mean, we, yeah, as you as you know um, from investing in the space um, w- with your team, um, you know it's uh, the difference between one well being drilled and eight wells being drilled is is where you're going to make your money, right? Um, you know, cash flow is king. It's always been king in this industry. And that's really what, what drives us probably 
probably makes us most different than any group um, in this space is is we really focus on on getting cash flow. So yeah, I mean to your point, um, you know when we look at a project, if if it really looks like only one or two wells, maybe three wells will be drilled over the course of of a few years from a royalty standpoint. That gets a completely different evaluation than if we're under, you know, um, Noble uh, and the DJ or, or or a group like that or or you know big Exxon up in the Bakken or 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 I believe they're in the Bakken, um, you know, some of those really well capitalized teams that you know majority of the time they come in and and drill you know fully infill what's you know commercially reasonable at that at that period of time um and and for us personally the biggest you know where we see we make our return is is in cash flow um if we can't look at a project if our the way we see that we're going to be to uh, make a profit on a project is that we have to wait for development to occur and or you know it's a very long timeline and it's not cash flow driving the majority of the return then that's probably not a project for us um you know, if you're just really looking for acreage appreciation, then then that's not something we'd be investing in or looking to put a majority of the portfolio into. Yeah. Well, hey, um, I, I don't want to turn this into a Joe Rogan three hour podcast and take up too much of your time here. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, uh, well, one one final kind of few questions here is you mentioned some people that you follow to stay on top of the financial movements in the industry. Do you have any resources that you can recommend to listeners that you think uh, would help them get a better handle on, on the things you're looking at on a daily basis? Well, one of my favorite daily publications uh, is, is by the equity research analyst of Baird. And I just saw this last Friday. It looks like uh, the two guys, Joe and uh, Ethan, might have been laid off. Uh, so that would have been my first answer. Um, as, but sounds like that would be no longer an option going forward, which uh, that was really, that was a touching, not touching, that, that's a little too soft, but that, that was a telling moment when equity research analysts at a pretty established, or to my knowledge, a pretty established uh, uh, research shop get laid off. Um, and I think that really says a lot about where this downturn is uh, currently. Um, but another one I've, I've picked up uh, just over the last couple of weeks has been um, uh, TPH does a uh, close of business Tuesday. Um, and I'm not sure if I can disclose these names. I'm, we're probably going to get in a ton of trouble for me saying be okay a bunch, but we'll just re- uh, redact everything. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just, just be play, blanks. play a song, some <laughs> yeah. modern cool song over yeah. that particular segment. But those just guys, Jay Z talk over you. Yeah. That, that sounds awesome. Uh, yeah. Someone cool, please. Um, but those, those guys put out a um, video, uh, every Tuesday called close of business. And, um, I really find that interesting. Um, and some of their, their research guys put, put out some pretty inform, uh, interesting information. Like I, I had no idea this, you didn't see this anywhere in the headlines, but, um, they were saying that only, uh, 4% or $175 million of the daily volume that traded negative. Um, I guess on the 20, was that the 21st or 20th? 20th, um, a couple of weeks ago, that only that was only four percent 
or $175 million of that daily volume actually went negative when, when oil price went negative. And I thought that was, I thought that was interesting because, you know, typically, or at least in my opinion, things seem to get blown out of proportion. And, and really, when you look at it from a numbers perspective, that wasn't a ton of 175 million is a ton of money, but from the overall relative perspective of, of the daily uh, WTI futures contract market, uh, it, it really wasn't. So, yeah, that's where the numbers guy comes yeah. out, where you, oh, you're man, not just calling those emotional <laughs> trigger headlines. You're actually going back and you're looking at the facts and saying, you know what, <laughs> this isn't quite what everyone's making it out to be. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's one I've just recently picked up on the uh, last couple of months that I've, I've or last couple of weeks, really, uh, that I've, I've found really uh, interesting. And then um, um, from a midstream perspective, uh, I believe it's RBN, um, ex-Bintech guy. Um, he, he puts out a daily publication that, that I usually read every morning as well. Well, great. Hey, uh, so what's a good way for people to get in touch with you if they want to, or, you know, maybe, maybe there's an investor out there that, you know, is blown away by what, what you've given here and as they should be and, uh, and wants to get a hold of you guys. What's, what's a good way to do that? Yeah. Uh, we got uh, unionrock.com is our website. I believe our, our contact information should be on there. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, feel free to, if anyone wants to get me directly, um, I believe my email is on the website. If not, have them, have them reach out to you and you're welcome to share my, my contact info. Sounds good. Well, uh, thanks for your time today, Reggie. Yeah, appreciate it, Adam. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the show. We started Oil Intel as a means for people to start thinking about how they can pivot and reposition themselves in a downturn market. If you or someone you know would make a great guest for the podcast, please stop by our website at www.oilintel.com where we have a form that you can fill out to be a guest. Alternatively, if you're in a point in your business where you just need a few extra minds in the room to think through your next moves, give us a shout at support at oilintel.com. Thanks again for listening and supporting Oil Intel.